following is a teaching message from Shore Community Church. For more information on Shore, for our teaching resources, visit www.shore.org.nz. Just to give the scene a little bit of context, it's a very well-known story, uh, this part of Exodus, and uh, at this point, at this point in Moses' life, he's 80 years old, uh, a little bit older than he, he looked there, uh, but he's a shepherd in Midian, in the desert of Midian, and as far as we know, he's got no plans of returning to Egypt. He's really settled down in the desert of Midian. He's, he's a Bedouin shepherd there. He's in charge of a bunch of sheep under the oversight of his father-in-law, Jethro, and he's just making a living there. He's got a family there. He's got a job there, and there's no indication that Moses really had any plans to return to Egypt, even though he knows that he's an Israelite, even though he knows he knows about the oppression of his people, but he's just doing his thing in, uh, in Midian. And one day, for no apparent reason, Moses leads his flock, leads his sheep to the far side of the wilderness, and he comes to this mountain called Mount Horeb. Now, Mount Horeb is the same mountain as Mount Sinai. It's just another name for Mount Sinai. So very significant place. This is where eventually the Israelites are going to get to. And you sort of get the impression here, like God is giving Moses a little practice run for the Exodus. You know, Moses is leading a bunch of sheep across the wilderness. Thanks, mate. Uh, to Mount Sinai. And uh, maybe God's saying, let's just see how it goes with the sheep first. If you can get them across the wilderness to Sinai, then I might trust you with a few million Israelites. So it's like a practice run here. Moses goes through the wilderness, arrives at Mount Sinai, the very mountain that he is going to lead God's people to eventually. And there he encounters God in this burning bush. Uh, in the movie Prince of Egypt, you get the impression the bush is inside this kind of cave, but it may well have been out in the open in the desert. And in fact, the most significant thing about the burning bush is not the fact that there was a burning bush. Uh, that's not an entirely uncommon sight. A number of people say that, you know, the bush, it, it's not unknown for bushes in this kind of desert environment to spontaneously combust. So just with desert temperatures, you can have a bush that just bursts into flames. Moses may well have seen a burning bush before. That's not the most significant thing. The most significant thing about the burning bush is that it doesn't get burned up. That's what the text says. He sees this bush and it was burning without being consumed without burning up. It's just this continual flame. And that's what catches his attention. That's what draws him a little bit closer to have a look at what's going on. And then from within the burning bush, God speaks to Moses. In fact, we're told that it's an angel of the Lord who speaks to Moses. So God was speaking here through some kind of angelic messenger or mediator, but that angel's very closely identified with God. In fact, most of the time in Exodus 3 and 4, it simply says, God said, to Moses. This is God speaking to Moses. And so that begins this whole dialogue between Moses and God that stretches right through chapter 3 and halfway through chapter 4. We'll pick up chapter 4 next week to look at the, the calling of Moses specifically. But this represents God's call on Moses' life. One of the great calling stories in the Old Testament. You could set this next to the call of Gideon, uh, the calling of Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, where God shows up and specifically reveals himself to an individual for the purpose of that person being part of God's great redemptive plan. That's what's going on here, the great calling of Moses. 
And there's a lot that you could learn about Moses from this passage and about the calling God places on his life. But that's not where I want to focus today. What I want to focus on is what this passage tells us about God and who God is, because I think that is the most significant thing. It's very easy with the whole book of Exodus to make it about Moses, because he's the main human actor. But we've got to continually remind ourselves the main character in Exodus is who? God, Yahweh. He is the protagonist. He is the main character here. And this passage is a key text for understanding who God is because this is where God gives Moses his name. This is where God reveals himself to Moses. One of the key places in the Bible, perhaps the most significant place, where God names himself to human beings. Even the very fact that God does this, the very fact that God names himself tells you something about God, doesn't it? It tells you that we're dealing with a God who wants to be known. A God who doesn't want to just be completely shrouded in mystery, but wants to disclose himself, wants to reveal himself, wants to say something about his identity. God reveals his name to Moses. So this is an incredibly significant part of the whole Bible for seeing who God is based on the name that he gives to Moses. So this is the part of the chapter I want to focus on. We'll pick it up in verse 13. Moses asks God a question. He puts up a few protests, Moses, in this chapter. Uh, and he says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? Then what shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. Those five words, I am who I am, incredibly, incredibly important. This is where we get the personal name for God in the Old Testament, which is Yahweh. You heard that name? Yahweh. It comes from this. Yahweh simply means He is, which is just the third person way of saying, I am. So when you see in your Bibles, whenever you see in the Old Testament or the New, the word Lord in capital letters, be capitalized, then you are looking at a translation of that word, Yahweh. And it's an interesting word. No one knows really how to pronounce it. It's four Hebrew letters. Uh, traditionally, Jews don't pronounce it uh, out of reverence to God. It's, it's the name that shall not be spoken. Uh, some people believe the name Yahweh is just supposed to sound like breath. So it's just supposed to be the sound of exhaling so that you say it kind of Yahweh, that kind of idea. Shall we try that? Would that be cool? Okay, ready? We're going to say, so, so it's Yahweh, but you just say it with this breathy, exhaling sound. All right, ready? Go. One, two, three. Yahweh. That's quite cool. Yahweh. And the idea, the symbolism behind that is that God is the giver of life. He's the breath of life. He's the spirit, breathes life into human beings. It's kind of like when you hongi, the idea of sharing breath. We share the divine breath. God gives us his breath. And we share in his life. He's the source of all life. That's probably something uh, that captures the essence of that name Yahweh as the breath of life. So that's the personal name of God, uh, at least through the, the Old Testament, through the Hebrew Bible. The longer version of his name is I am who I am, or I am that I am. And that in Hebrew sounds like this, Iyech Asher Iyech. The key verb is iyech, that's the I am. And it's, it's extremely important and at the same time extremely ambiguous. 
as to what that means because it, it's so vague. And there's a couple of schools of thought as to what means. Uh, one is that it means basically what it says in our English Bibles. And it's translated, I think, in every single English Bible. If you look at yours, uh, something like, I am who I am, or possibly, I am that I am. And that kind of gives you the impression that the name tells you something about God's being, that he is. This is about his essence, that he exists, that he self-exists, doesn't need any, he's not dependent on anyone or anything for his existence. He's not created by someone else. He is the eternal God from everlasting to everlasting. God is the source of all existence. He's the ground of all reality. He defines life. He defines existence. God simply is. That's probably all there in that name. It's probably all wrapped up in what I am who I am means. But I don't think that's all it means. I think there's more. Because that phrase, can also be taken this way. It can be translated, I will be who I will be. And if you think that's weird, you can have a look at your Bible. Most Bibles have a little note down the bottom or in the margin there that gives you that alternative translation, just as possible, based on the verbs, just as possible, that it could say, I will be, or even, I will do what I will do, if you take the verbs in an active sense. So in that, in that way, it casts it in a new light, doesn't it? It's a slightly different way of thinking about it. Now this is not just a statement about God's being. It's not just a kind of metaphysical statement. Now this is a statement about God's doing, about God doing something. This is about the way God works in the world. This is about the way God acts in history, the way he acts toward people. This is about what God does. And I think probably it's both. It's about who God is and about what God does. Let me just show you a couple of other places where this verb, yeah crops up where God says the same verb in other contexts. If you just look two verses back in Exodus chapter 3, in verse 12, God says, I will be with you. Simple phrase, but he uses the same verb, same verb that he uses when he gives Moses his name, I am or I will be. So there, when God says, I will be with you, he's not making a statement about I, I am eternal or I self-exist or I'm ultimate reality. He's simply saying, I will be present with you. He's committing himself to something in relation to his people. In Exodus 4, verse 12, God says, I will be, uh, rather, I will help you speak to Moses and Aaron. Same verb again, I will help you speak. Deuteronomy 31, 23, I myself will be with you. 1 Chronicles 17, 13, I will be his father. Jeremiah 31, 1, I will be the God of all the families of Israel. So it seems like when God says this word, what he's saying is, I will be something or I will be someone to you. It's not just a statement of God's essence. It's a statement of what God is going to do in relation to people and specifically in relation to the people he loves. Now, if you come back to Exodus 3 then and look at what is God saying he will do? What is God saying that he will be? Well, he's saying he will rescue Israel. He's saying he will deliver them. He's saying that he'll be with Moses. He's saying he'll, he'll, he'll enable Moses to stand before Pharaoh. He'll bring the Israelites out of slavery. He'll lead them into the land of promise. He'll drive out all these other nations before them. He'll settle them in his own land. He's saying that he will be not only present with his people, but that he will defend them, that he'll be their advocate, that he will be faithful to them. The best translation 
or interpretation that I've heard of that phrase, I am who I am, is by a commentator called Terence Fryfham. And he says it simply means this, I will be God for you. That, I think, captures the meaning of what God... I know this is a slightly different way of thinking about it to what because we, we usually hear I am who I am. We think of it just kind of in a philosophical sense. But God fundamentally here is saying, I will be God for you. I am with you and I am for you. I will act for your good. I will act for your well-being. I will be faithful. I will be your advocate. I will be your defender. I will be your champion. I will be the lifter of your head. I will be your rescuer and your deliverer. I will bind myself to you in a covenant because of the promises I made to Abraham. That's what God is saying. I will be faithful. You can count on me, God is saying, to be God, to be faithful. Come what may, and regardless of your own unfaithfulness, I am for you. Isn't it amazing to think that the very name of God means I am for you? That God is committing himself to us in this relationship of belonging, he belonging to us, us belonging to him. I am for you, Yahweh. Now, if that is sounding like a little bit of a stretch, some of you are like, I don't know, I want to stick with the old translation. This is sounding a bit weird. Let me just take you to one other passage in the Old Testament where this crops up in a very negative sense and sheds a little bit more light on the I am. Hosea, chapter 1. There's a book that doesn't get a lot of airtime these days. Hosea, break it open for just a second and shake off the cobwebs in Hosea chapter 1. Here's a, here's a passage where God is threatening Israel and threatening to revoke his presence from them, threatening to revoke his covenant with them. And he's talking about Hosea, but really talking about Israel. And Hosea's just had a son, and God says in verse 9, Then the Lord said, Call him Lo-Ami, which means not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. That sounds incredibly strong, but in Hebrew it sounds even stronger. Literally that phrase at the end says, I am not your I am. In other words, God is invoking the divine name in the negative sense. He's saying, I'm going to take it away. I will no longer be your I am. He, he's echoing the way he named himself to Moses, but he's saying it's, it's, it's going to be over. So he's not making a statement here about his eternal being. God doesn't he's not saying, I'm, I'm going to cease to exist or I'm not going to be eternal. God's essence is not changing. What he's saying is, I'm no longer going to be for you. I'm no longer going to be in covenant with you. Such is your wickedness. Such is your insidious rebellion. I will take my presence away from you. I'll no longer be for you. You'll just be left on your own. This is relationship language. Can you hear that? This is the language of belonging in the negative sense. And yet in the very next verse, if you just sneak forward to verse 10 in Hosea 1, God says, and yet the Israelites will be as numerous as the sand on the, she on the seashore. He goes straight back to the promises. It's like God is wrestling oscillating between I'm going to revoke my name and then the very next verse, I can't give you up. I can't, I can't go back. I can't go back on my promises. Come what may, how can I give you up, Israel? I am going to be faithful after all, in spite of your rebellion, because of the promises I've made to Abraham. And so God doesn't revoke his name from his people, but he maintains his promises, even in spite of Israel's wickedness.
Does that give you a bit more insight into the nature of the name? That when God calls himself Yahweh, when he says, I am who I am, he is talking about relationships. He's using the language of belonging. He's using a personal phrase to emphasize to his people that he is with them, he is for them, and he will be faithful to them. Now, while you're still pondering all of that, come over again to the New Testament, slightly more familiar ground in the Gospel of John. Now, some of you were part of the series we did last year in the Gospel of John, and hopefully this is uh, echoing a few things that we learned in that series. You remember that time after time in the Gospel of John, Jesus says things like, I am this or I am that. I am the, the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the light of the world. Uh, he, he goes on and on. And then this all builds to a climax in John chapter 8, verse 56, where Jesus says this. Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. And some translations, yours might be one of them, put I am in capital letters there to make it abundantly clear that Jesus is invoking the divine name. That Jesus is saying, he's not just saying before Abraham was born, I existed or I predated Abraham. He's saying, I am Yahweh. I'm the same God. The same God who appeared to Moses from within the burning bush is now speaking to you, says Jesus, in effect. The same God who called Moses to deliver Israel is now here in flesh and blood. Jesus is identifying himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the great I am. I am is here. And if you think about the meaning of that phrase, I am, as I am for you, it makes so much sense when you come to Jesus because if God is for us, what is the ultimate expression of him being for us? That he sent his son, right? For us. That Jesus is the living demonstration that God is for us. That God would bother to become a human being, speaks to his love, speaks to his faithfulness, that Christ lived for us. He died for us. He was resurrected again for us so that he would reconcile us to God and bring us into this covenant family so that we could be part of Abraham's family and therefore through Jesus we hear the Father speaking over our lives the same verdict, I am for you. We hear that name in our life because of Jesus. Isn't that fantastic? That we hear the divine name spoken over our lives. We hear God say, I am for you, I am with you, I am faithful to you. And we hear that because we belong to Jesus. God hasn't always been for us in that sense. We used to be objects of his wrath before we were outside, when we were outside of Christ. But now in Christ, God is for us. He's faithful to us. And all that is wrapped up in God's name. I think the hardest part for us is just believing that is true and really hearing God say to us, I am Yahweh, I am for you. You know, we've talked about God's name. Do you know what the name Israel means? It means he struggles with God. It comes from Jacob, who was renamed Israel. Jacob wrestled with God in his dream, and then God renamed him Israel, meaning he struggles with God. And, and I, I think 
that interplay in the Old Testament between God and Israel is the story of humanity and God. It's the story of all of our relationships with God. God has said, I am for you, and we struggle. We struggle to believe it. We struggle to hear it. God says, I am for you, but we just struggle. Ever since the beginning, ever since the garden. Isn't that the first lie that was planted in the mind of humanity when Satan shows up and says, did God really say? Did God really say you can't eat from the tree? Did God really? Surely he didn't mean this. Surely he would want you to be happy. You see what he's doing? He is challenging the assumption that God is for you. Right there in the beginning. And by undermining that belief that God is for us, that God was for the first human beings, sin crept into the world. All sin originates from our inability to accept and believe that God is truly for us. Our inability to truly trust in God's for usness. That's where sin comes from. And ever since the garden, we've believed the lie that God is not really for us. We've struggled. We've struggled to really hear the name, really hear the name Yahweh and its meaning and its fullness in our lives. And we struggle with it today. I remember when I was in the States, I spoke at our church there in Cincinnati. And after the message, this young woman came up to me and she simply said, I don't feel like I can ever do enough to please God. And you could just see she was so condemned. She just had rejected herself. She felt like God rejected her. She just lived in guilt and, and condemnation. And what she was wrestling was really at the heart of it was not just a self-identity issue. It was a God identity issue that she was not grasping who God is. She was not understanding the fullness of the name of God. It, it's, it's important. This is basic to our faith. When you think about God, ask yourself this. When you think about God, how do you think he sees you? When you imagine God, when you pick, however you imagine him, however you think about it, what impression do you have of his attitude to you? What, how does he see you? What impression is on his face when he looks at you? Do you believe that fundamentally when God looks at you, he looks at you with a face of disappointment? You believe that when God looks at you, he fundamentally is annoyed at you or angry with you or just disinterested in you, that he just couldn't really care less about you. How does God see you? That's basic. That will affect, every, that will affect your entire relationship with God and your relationship with yourself because if I have a hard time believing that God is for me, I'm going to have a hard time being for myself. If I've got a hard time believing that God loves me, I'm going to have a hard time loving myself. If I struggle to believe that God has forgiven me, I will struggle to forgive myself. If I believe fundamentally God's angry at me, disappointed with me and annoyed at me, I'm going to be angry, frustrated, disappointed at myself continually. Your relationship with God, your perception of God affects your perception of yourself. This is basic. So we need to get the right impression of how God sees us. We need to hear his name. We need to know that he is Yahweh and he is for us. And you know the place to look, if you're not sure, or maybe you just know it but you don't believe it, if you're not sure, the place to look is to the cross. 
It's not to your own self. This is the mistake. So don't go looking, well, maybe if I search my life and, and kind of review everything about me, I'll find some stuff for God to like. No, you won't. That'll just reinforce your perception that God has nothing to like. There's nothing in us that's worthy of this. Don't go for a sort of self-introspection thing. Look to the cross. We've got to look outside of ourselves to what God has done for us in Jesus. That's why he's for you. It's because he's for his son. It's because he's for Jesus. And we're in Christ, so now we're in the beloved, and we're accepted in Jesus Christ. His life is our life. His death is our death. His resurrection is our resurrection. And his inheritance one day will be our inheritance. That's why Paul gets to Romans 8 and says, If God is for you, who can be against you? He who did not spare his own son for us, but gave him up, will he not graciously, along with him, give us all things? It's because of Jesus that God is for us. That's the re- so don't look to yourself. Look to Christ. That's why... God loves you. That's why he is for you. I've said this before, but if you're in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can hear God speak over your life the same words he spoke over his son at Jesus' baptism. You are my precious son. You are my precious daughter. I'm well pleased with you. I take delight in you. My favor rests on you. We hear those words now spoken to us because we're in Christ Jesus. We've got to learn to hear deeply the name of God, and to soak in the forusness of Father, Son, and Spirit. Some of you really need to hear that because you're struggling, because you're battling with whatever it is, and life is just hard. And you need to be reminded that despite everything that's going on, despite the grind, despite the gruelingly hard situation you are in, God is for you. He's for you in Christ Jesus. And some of you have have got to hear this because you've just about given up on yourself. And you've got to know that even when you can't be for yourself, God is still for you. Those of you that you, you just can't even forgive yourself, you can't even begin to love or accept yourself, in spite of that, just look up this morning and look at the cross and know that God is for you, even if you're not for yourself. Even if you're just so down on yourself right now, you're just wallowing in self pity and misery, you can still look up and see the cross and know God is for you. God is with you. He's going to be faithful to you in spite of your circumstances, in spite of your own unfaithfulness, and in spite of our inability to even receive it and hear it. God is still for you, and He will be forever. He's on your side. He's in your team. He's in your corner. He loves you. Last year, I started taking Josh, our oldest son, to athletics. Monday nights, we go down to Birkenhead Memorial Park and uh, they do the whole track and field thing, which is quite cute with three, four, and five-year-olds because they sort of, they modify the activities, you know, so javelin is like throwing plastic rockets and shot put is throwing rubber rings and high jump is like just trying to get the kids on the mat, forget the bar, just trying to get them on a mat. It's really cute to watch. And so I remember the first time that Josh had to do running and this was the first time ever that he'd had to do a race in a lane and stay in a lane. So I was on the sideline, and they lined all the kids up. I think he was uh, three then, uh, maybe four. Lined them all up, and the coach said, go. And they started running. And immediately I started cheering, started calling out, Josh, you know, great job, keep running, keep running. But it really startled him. Like, he wasn't expecting that. He wasn't expecting Dad to start talking from the side. So he just sort of looked up, looked, you know, looked over at me. And then he started running towards me. 
So he started crossing all the lanes, <laughs> cutting across these lanes, running towards me, and I had to sort of re-steer him. Uh, You've got to go this way, Josh. Keep running, keep running. And, uh, but what I wanted him to know more than anything is that however good or bad he did, I am for him. You know? I'm for him, and I want him to know. I've got his back. I'm, I'm going to be his biggest champion down there. I am for him. And God wants you to know this, that he's for you. Maybe that's a helpful analogy for you. The days you're running well, right? But also the days when you collapse on the track and life's a mess and you're just feeling a mess. The Father is still for you. He still loves you. He wants you to run towards his voice. He wants you to hear that. He'll pick you up, he'll dust you off, and he'll set you back on your feet again. He wants you to know that he is for you. He wants you to know the great I am, the creator of heaven and earth, is with you and is for you. So I pray that you can hear that this morning. I pray that you would hear the name of Yahweh spoken over your life. I pray that you would know the I am who has revealed himself in Jesus of Nazareth to show us just how much God is for us. I pray that you would know the God who is for you and who is with you and who is faithful to you. I pray that you'd hear the blessing of Zephaniah 3. Let me finish with this. And you might just want to close your eyes and receive this as a blessing over your life to hear the words of the Father spoken to you this morning. It says, The Lord our God is with us, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. He will quieten you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. May you hear the Father, Son, and Spirit rejoicing over you with singing this morning. Amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources, or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.